Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. I was, uh, I was talking to one of the guys on the worship team beforehand, and he was talking about um, just all the crazy stuff going on in the world and how, you know, it's really just a matter of time until everybody's kind of affected by something in these days. And, uh, and then he said, then he, he kind of went through the worship set as he was rehearsing, and he said that it was like a 24-minute prayer, <laughs> you know, that just so uh, spoke to everything that's going on. And I, I just felt that as we worship tonight, just Lord's, His peace, His grace. I want to just read um, real quick from Psalm 46. It says this, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, We will not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. You just think about the contrast between the the height of the mountains and the depths of the sea. This is the highest to the lowest, and everything gets flipped upside down. That's kind of the idea. And he says that we're not going to worry and fear even if that happens. Here's why. He says, there's a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her in that right early. The heathen, that's the Gentiles, the nations, raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. But the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he's made in the earth. He makes wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He cuts the spear in sunder. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Amen. Amen. Let's just pray. Father, we uh, again come to you and We thank you for who you are, and as we read just that little bit of your word before you, uh, Lord, we just want to come into that place where uh, we're not riding upon the movements of the world, but that we're sitting uh, still in the city of God. And we ask, Lord, that the streams of your river would reach even to us tonight. So, Lord, we just uh, declare your name. We declare and confess your faithfulness and your word over us, Lord, and we pray tonight that you would be here. We ask for your filling. We ask for your spirit to come. We ask, Lord, that you would anoint your word tonight and the message that we'll hear, and that, Father, we would just be uh, lifted into your presence. So we just thank you in advance, God, for your grace and your goodness, and pray you be with us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you need a Bible, get the attention of one of the ushers. If you have your Bible, you can open it to the book of Acts tonight, book of Acts chapter 6, as we are studying through uh, kind of the life of Paul This is our fourth message in this uh, kind of, I guess, series we're calling Devoted, the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. And uh, I want to kind of pick up where we left off last week and just get into it. I'm going to go through a lot of text tonight in the book of Acts, so uh, I want to move through, uh, kind of, not quickly, but uh, I want to keep the pace up so that we get through everything and, and get out of here on time. But um, I, I left off last week in a little passage, two verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where the Apostle Paul was speaking to the church later on in his life, later on in his ministry, and just reflecting over all that God had done for him and God had done through him, uh, the calling and the ministry that he had. Uh, And he was speaking concerning uh, God's grace towards him and his ministry. And he said this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. He says, For I am the least of the apostles that I'm not meet or, or fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, all the rest of the apostles combined. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And so uh, Paul there just talking about his ministry, saying that he's an apostle, calling himself an apostle, but also declaring that he's not worthy to be called an apostle because of his persecution of the church. But then he acknowledged it and he says, but nevertheless, in spite of all that my past 
says that I'm disqualified from. He says, I am what I am by the grace of God. He says, if it's left up to what I earned or deserve, he goes, no chance. He says, but by the grace of God, I am. And so Paul's calling in his life and his craft, what he would ultimately become is an apostle and specifically the apostle to the Gentiles or to the non-Jewish nations. And so that was a privilege that was gifted to him by grace. And the reason I, I kind of begin there and pick up there is because where Paul ended up in his uh, calling later on is connected to his conversion at the beginning which is kind of where we are leading into here at the very beginning of things, okay? And so uh, tonight, as we get into the study, we are moving from the first sea, the sea of context, into the second of seven seas, uh, that is the sea of conversion, as we begin to see now how God got a hold of this man who was an opposer of the church and of God's uh, movement through the church and how he became the apostle of the nations uh, that would make up the greater part of the church. Now, here's what we know about Paul thus far. We know that prior to his encounter with Jesus Christ, he was a devout Jew. We know that he was born and raised in Tarsus, which was a city in the Roman Empire, specifically in Asia Minor. So he was not born in Jerusalem, but he had dual citizenship because of his nationality. We also know that Paul uh, at some point moved to Jerusalem where he was taught at the feet of a rabbi, a famous rabbi whose name was Gamaliel. And we know that Paul moved his way through the ranks of uh, Jewish leadership to a place of renown. He was a man of reputation, uh, and he was a man moving upwards. We also know that he was obsessed with the undoing of this new sect, the sect of the Nazarene, that is, uh, those who called themselves the disciples of Jesus Christ. He was vehemently opposed to it, and he was giving all of his energy to try, and try to uh, undo it or, or to um, stop it, okay? Now, while all of that was was going on in the life of this man, whose name was still Saul at the time. He hadn't changed his name to Paul yet. Meanwhile, in Jerusalem, God was doing something that could not be stopped. We know that the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the church on the day of Pentecost. We know that people were being added to the church daily. We know that the numbers of people uh, were being counted in the thousands, not in the tens or in the hundreds. God saw them as individuals, but yet there were uh, so many of them that they had to be numbered in the thousands. We know that the number was multiplying exponentially. We know that there was an effort amongst the establishment of Jewish people to try to stop what God was doing, that they were, they were really trying really hard, but they were unable to do it. All of their efforts were in vain, and we know that the church was thriving. We read in Acts chapter 4, in verse uh, 31, it gives a description of what it was like in the early days of the church. It says uh, here, it says that when they had prayed that the place where was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. That's not the initial filling, but this is just a subsequent uh, outpouring of God as it was, it seems like a constant thing in those days. And it says that they spoke the word of God with boldness. And it says that the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Now just think about that for a minute. It means that you didn't go down the street and there was a church on every corner and everyone had a different name, you know, like the first Baptist church of Jesus. And then across the road was the first Pentecostal church of the Nazarene. And all the ones across the street, they almost have it right, but we, we really have it right. It wasn't like that. It says the whole multitude of them were all together and they were of one mind. It also says that neither said any of them that any of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And I love this last line. And it says that great grace was upon them all. 
great grace was upon them all. So it was amazing uh, what God was doing in those days, all right? The church was just thriving. Now, I know that there's someone here that sees where it says that they had all things in common and, and you know, they didn't claim that anything they had their own. And you say, was that like communism? Is that kind of the way that they, they followed it in it? And the answer is, is, a, is a resounding no. <laughs> and, and here's how, why, why we can make that distinction. Because this isn't communism, this is Christianism. And here's why. Because it wasn't a mandate that no one possessed any of the things himself, but they had to, when they, when they joined the church, they just gave up everything. No, it was a movement. It was something that God, the Holy Spirit was doing in the hearts of the people where they were just so caught up in Jesus in the spirit and the kingdom and what God was doing, that they were moved of God to just let go of everything earthly. And it was just a time like no other. There probably has never been a time. In fact, I can probably say that authoritatively that there has never been a time in the Christian church since those days that was quite like that. We've had times of refreshing. We've had outpourings, revivals. We've had uh, movements and different things that have happened. But in these days here in the early church, it was like a brand new baby. You, you, those of you that are parents, remember when you had your first baby and even their spit was like cleaner than water. You know, they're just so clean when they first come, you know, and there's nothing. And then all of a sudden it's like they eat their first meal and, and something gets in them and they're just not as clean anymore, you know, as they first were. And that's what it was like for the church. It was so new and so fresh and so clean, okay? And so we know that there was peace. We know that there was power. We know that there was prosperity. It says no one lacked. And all of those things are good things. But there's a bad thing that comes with all those good things. And here's what it is, is that when you have peace and when you have power and when you have complacency, I'm sorry, uh, uh, prosperity, you tend to have some complacency creep in also, okay? You can get a little bit uh, relaxed, all right? Now, here's the problem with that, is that Jesus' last words before being caught up, before he was raised, his last words was he said, go, therefore, and teach all nations, he said, the promise of the Father is going to come upon you. You're going to receive power to be witness of me in Jerusalem and Judea, but also in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And he said, I want you to take the fire that's going to come on Pentecost, and I want you to go. And the problem is things were so good in Jerusalem that nobody wanted to go. And you wouldn't want to go either if you were there. It was that good, you know? So why would I want to leave this place and go where I don't know and, and what I don't know? Why would I do that? And nobody was. Everyone was just staying right where they were, okay? So God wants the fire to spread, but the church is staying localized and the fire is growing and it's getting intensely hot, and so it was very good, all right, but they were out of the will of God in that one area in that no one was going. And so what happens, all right, what, are, what is the unintended consequence of logical disobedience, right? Like, why would I leave? Why would I go? Everything here is so good. Everything I have, everything I need, we're being effective. This is good. There's no reason for me to go. It's logical for me to not obey God in this. What are the effects of logical disobedience? Well, for them, in the church in those days, some problems started to arise. Number one was hypocrisy. You'll read in those early chapters of Acts about two people named Ananias and Sapphira. And they saw the purity of the church, and they saw a way wherein they could capitalize on the trusting and naive nature of the Christians in that time, and they brought hypocrisy into the church. Thankfully, it was discerned by the apostle Peter, and the hypocrisy was quickly removed, but it had an effect. It caused fear to come into the people, which is good. It's good to have a fear of God, but they saw a side of God that I'm not sure if God was wanting to show at that point and in that moment. It also had the effect of creating somewhat of a distinction between the apostles and the rest of the people. They were separate, and it says that no one dared after that to join themselves to the apostles, and it, it created something. Something happened because of the hypocrisy. That wasn't the only problem. There was also conflict that arose. When you get a whole bunch of people all together, 
and, and, and it's growing and it's complacent, people have energy. And what do they do? They start to fight a little bit. And it happened when you read in the beginning of Acts chapter 6, it says that there arose a murmuring, a complaining of the Grecian Jews against the Hellenist Jews, that is the Jews that emigrated from Grecian Roman places and the Hellenist Jews, which were native to Israel because they said their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So they were looking across at lunchtime and they were seeing that the food was going favorably towards the Hellenists and the Grecians said, hey, what gives? You know, you guys are getting the chicken and all that's left for us is chickpeas and that's not fair. You know, we, we feel like we're being slighted in this whole thing and they started to fight. There started to be this division, this contention uh, in that moment, okay? It turned into a distraction. And so the apostles who were the leaders, they stopped giving their attention to the word and to the teaching of Jesus and they started to deal with some of these administrative things, and it became a problem. And so Peter rose up, and he said, hey, this has got to stop. We have a problem here. we got to solve the problem. And so they introduced kind of some structure, some organization into it. And yes, that's good. You have to have order when you have a whole bunch of people. But the problem with order sometimes is that you can organize the Holy Spirit out and it was the beginning, the beginning of, of what that would be. In fact, that whole program turned into a problem, as we'll see later on uh, in the book of Acts moving forward. Okay, so they said, okay, we have to be political about this. Contention results in politics. And so what did they do? They appointed seven men that were full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit to oversee the proper distribution of the daily supplies. And because they were wise and they had to be political, because that's what you do in this world, they chose Grecian people, they chose Greek Christians to be the overseers of the distribution. It was the Grecian widows that had the issue. And so let's appoint Grecian Christians to oversee it. That will silence the, the, the skepticism, and it will also maybe show favor towards those that are complaining. A little bit of politics going on. And you say, maybe that's not so good, and maybe it's not so good. But then again, one of those seven that were chosen, those Grecians, was a man by the name of Stephen. And when we come to Stephen, you'll notice that we're in Acts chapter 6, uh, we're in the second half of it, uh, now we come to something um, very interesting, okay? Now, after those seven deacons, they were called, were appointed, Stephen being one of them, the result of that was, it says in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says that the word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, even unto a great company of the priests being obedient to the faith. Okay, so as they overcome these issues and as they continue to move forward with the Spirit's help, it compounds the issue of a multitude of Christians all gathered together in one place when God wants them to spread out to all places. And so, okay, hypocrisy didn't take them down, but it didn't solve the problem. Conflict didn't wake them up to realize that we should probably spread out. And so now there's a new problem that arises, and we see it um, in verses 8 and 9. It says in verse 8 of chapter 6, it says that Stephen, one of those seven original deacons, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Now that's a positive right? When you see not apostles, but just people who had given their lives to Christ now growing to the place where they are doing great things in the name of God, that's good. It isn't just the numbers that were multiplying, but even the individual people were growing. They were filled with God. They were moving in the power of God. But watch verse 9. It says, then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians and Alexandrians and of them of Cilicia and of Asia disputing or arguing with Stephen. Okay, so these are Jews that have joined the movement to try to stop 
the sect of the disciples. They want to put it out. And it says that they arose. You see that word? I love that. Because the idea is of something that kind of grows up out of the ground. You know, something that's not there, and all of a sudden, then it appears there. All right? And that is where the problem comes in. It reminds me of something that Jesus said. Remember uh, when Jesus was giving the kingdom parables and he was trying to explain to, to his people what it would be like, what the kingdom was like? And he said that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, an enemy came and sowed tares or weeds among the wheat. And over time, they rose up also. Okay, so the good things grow and then problems rise also. And I hope you know that that's normal in life, right? That when good things grow, other things rise up too that maybe aren't so good, right? You guys know that. When something good is growing, something else will come up too. When your family is growing, right? Needs and expectations of other people come with that. They rise up too. When money is growing and finances are are expanding, expenses seem to grow up out of the ground as well, right? (laughs) When you are promoted, when your career or your business is going forward, then expectations arise up too. If you have more cattle, you have more manure. And if you're being more effective, then there's going to be more resistance because that's what happens and that's what happened. The church was being effective And so now there arose up out of the ground persecution as well. And so it says that there arose up these Jews and they tried to argue with Stephen. But then in verse 10, it says that they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. So they suborned or hired or appointed men, which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. So they launch a smear campaign against Stephen, and it expands from the common person all the way up through to the most prominent of the Jewish leaders. And so they get a warrant for his arrest, they find him, and they bring him into the courtroom. And in verse 13, it says that they set up false witnesses, which said, this man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. The the Bible says that the righteous are as bold as a lion. And here's Stephen. He knows he's done nothing wrong. He's filled with God. He has the authority of the scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit with him. He has the presence of Jesus standing with him, and he's not intimidated by this intensely intimidating scene that's there before him of these uh, Jewish leaders that are there. And so Stephen is on trial now, okay? So here's a problem that's arisen for the church and especially for Stephen. It's the problem of persecution. And so he has the sham trial, the council is there. But the good thing about a problem is that a problem often presents an opportunity. And for Stephen, he now has that opportunity. Notice in chapter seven, verse one. It says, then said the high priest are these things so? Oh, he just let a lion out of the cage. Because now Stephen has an opportunity in the midst of this trial, this persecution, to testify, to speak the truth of the word, to let the seed of God's power out of his mouth and to spray it like a fire hose upon the hearts of those that are resisting and that don't want to hear anything that uh, Stephen has to say. And so Stephen's about to speak, and he's going to speak. If Stephen's words were red letters, you would notice that the rest of this chapter is all red letters because Stephen is about to give it to them unintimidated by uh, their presence, okay? So Stephen's going to give a sermon here. Stephen's sermon has three points, I'm sorry, three examples, three sections, but it has one point. 
He wants to say one thing to them, and he's going to say it to them three different ways so that there's absolutely uh, no mistaking the message that he has or, or any lack of clarity in what he tries to communicate to them. He's going to give them three examples from the Old Testament, three stories that they were well familiar with, and he's going to bring it to one application that will silence their claims and also their desires to reject and refuse Jesus. He's going to talk about Abraham. Then he's going to talk about Joseph, the grandson of Abraham. And then he's going to talk about Moses, the one whom they seem so concerned about that Stephen is trying to pervert his customs and change uh, the things of Moses. And so he begins with Abraham in verse 2 as he addresses these people. Notice it says this. It says that he said, men, brethren, and fathers, listen, hearken. Open your ears. And they're going to open their ears. They won't close them until much later in the sermon. So they're going to hear it. He says, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, when he was in Babylon, modern day Iraq, between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, before he dwelt in Haran. And he said unto him, God to Abraham, he said, get thee out of your country and from your kindred and come into the land which I will show you. So he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and he dwelt in Haran and from there, when his father was dead, he removed into this land wherein you now dwell. Stephen begins by calling to the witness stand Abraham and he gives an example concerning Abraham, listen to this, of illogical obedience. We saw that the early church had some logical disobedience going on. And here we see Abraham with some illogical obedience because he was living in the rich hub of society in Ur of the Chaldees. It was like modern day New York City. There was wealth, there was luxury, there was innovation. We know that Abraham personally benefited from that because even when he left, he left there as a very wealthy man. And God said, I want you to go to a place that is essentially a desert where nobody lives at all and there's nothing happening. And Abraham's like, this, that. But he says, I'm here, I have everything I want, but I know there's something missing in my life. And if God is speaking to me and telling me that I need to go, then for me to stay is going to be a net loss. And so he makes the decision, as difficult as it is, to take his wife and all of his substance, including his servants, and to break ties with a family that didn't want to be broken, and to go in spite of the fact that it wasn't logical for him to do that at that point in his young life. So Abraham, in his relationship with God, was the foundation of the national existence of the Jews. There would be no council, there would be no high priest, there would be nobody there in Jerusalem talking to Stephen if Abraham hadn't first obeyed God and left Ur of the Chaldees. Okay, then he goes on in verse 5, and he says, and he, God, gave him, Abraham, no inheritance in the land. No, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him when as yet he had no child. Okay, so God gives Abraham a promise once he's in the land and he says, hey, this land that you're standing on, I want you to look as far as you can to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. And he says, I have given by promise this land to you and your descendants that are after you. It's a promise of God. Now, none of that was accomplished or fulfilled during the lifetime of Abraham. It didn't come to pass until much later, but there was a promise that was given. And Stephen kind of alludes to the fact that that promise was given, but yet it was not fulfilled for Abraham in his lifetime. Did you guys know that a promise of God is a process? That it isn't something that happens all at once? It didn't happen for Abraham in the timetable that maybe he had hoped. It was something that would come for his descendants, for his seed that was at would, would be after him. Now, what's amazing to me is that Abraham 
kind of knew that and he was okay with it. Let me just ask you just to internalize that for just a moment. Okay, if God gave you a promise that something was going to be in your life, but yet the fulfillment of that promise wasn't going to come until after you were dead, how would you feel about that? Abraham was okay with it. Here's why. Because Abraham had already settled it in his mind that there was nothing that this earth could give to him, whether it was land or possession or anything else, that could truly satisfy his soul. And the only thing that Abraham had found that would satisfy him truly was the God who was giving the promise. And so because Abraham was already satisfied by the God who gave the promise, he didn't need to see the fulfillment of the promise in order for him to be satisfied. That's why he was okay with it. Okay, let me go one step further. If satisfaction is contingent upon the fulfillment of the promise, and it is not found in the God who gives the promise only, then even if the promise comes, you won't be satisfied with that. Because the only thing that can truly satisfy a life is God. And the promises are secondary. It isn't the gift that satisfies, it's the giver. And if you get the gift, but you don't have the giver, then you won't be satisfied with the gift because it's only found in the giver. So Abraham realized that the promise of God is a process, but it isn't what we live for. God is what we live for, okay? He was okay with it. Not only is a promise a process, but a promise isn't all primrose either. Watch verse six. It says that God spoke on this wise to Abraham. He said that his seed, his descendants, will sojourn in a strange land and they will bring them into bondage and entreat them evil for 400 years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage, God said, I will judge. And after that, they will come forth and they will serve me in this place. In other words, before the promise comes that, you, that you're waiting for, that you left for, there's going to be some pain that comes first. There's going to be four generations or four centuries, really, where your descendants are going to be slaves in Egypt and they're going to be treated very poorly for a period of time while things are being prepared and while things are happening. Do you realize that usually while things are being formed, we call it gestation, it's uncomfortable. I haven't had to go through it myself, but I have been witness to it from the front seat five times. It's very uncomfortable, okay, when things are forming, when life is forming in the womb. I also know that right before the promise comes, there's a little bit of pain, okay? There's a lot of pain. All right, again, I haven't gone through it myself, <laughs> but I've witnessed it five times, all right? And sometimes that's just the way it is because God does his work of formation in the darkness, okay? But here's the point. This is where Stephen is going with this. He's saying, listen, the first time, there's a theme here, the first time Abraham came into the land, it was not given to him. He was a stranger in that land and his descendants were taken out of that land, and it wasn't until they came back the second time, the second time, that then they possessed the land. It wasn't the first coming into the land, it was at the second coming into the land that they possessed it, okay? Then he goes on in verse 8, and he says this. He says that he gave him, Abraham, the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the patriarchs. Okay, so this is the third thing. A promise is a process. A promise isn't all primrose. And number three is that, that promise comes after progress. Okay, Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob had 12 sons, they're called the patriarchs here or the fathers. And Jacob's 12 sons became the heads of the nation, the 12 tribes of Israel. So there was a whole 
bunch of progress that needed to be made amongst the people of God before the promise was fulfilled. Now, I want to say this to you concerning your relationship with God and God's call and purpose upon your life, is that a promise from God is usually a destination, not an event. Meaning that if God has promised you something, that you're going to be a mother or that you're going to be a business owner or that you're going to, whatever it is that God has put in your heart, and that can be as, as vast as the, the difference in our appearance and our faces because God is that personal and that big. If God has given you a promise, that promise is a destination, not an event. Meaning that you're not going to just wake up one day and get a letter in the mail and it's like, oh, the promise is fulfilled. It's here. No, you're going to walk and you're going to progress, and you're going to grow, and you're going to learn, and you're going to be deepened, and God is going to root a whole bunch of junk out of you, and he's going to instill a whole bunch of stuff into you, and step by step, and day by day, you're going to move into the place, and suddenly, in a moment, you're going to realize that you've arrived somewhere that you've been traveling towards for a long time. And you're going to give glory to God because you're going to see that he saw the destination before you took the first step. And then he led you all along the way, did his work in doing it. And now you're there. What's the point? The point is keep going. The point is don't stop. Don't get lazy. Don't waste time. Keep doing what's in front of you right now and do it faithfully because it's part of the progress that leads to the promise of what God has declared upon your life, okay? God did it even though Abraham couldn't figure all of it out. He talks about Abraham. Now he talks about Joseph, all right? Same theme, different character. Verse nine, it says that the patriarchs, that is the 12 sons of Jacob, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. And he delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Okay, so now he moves on to Joseph. And he says, concerning Joseph, he says, hey, listen, all of the other brothers, Joseph's, and there was actually only 10 brothers of Joseph at this time because one hadn't been born yet, Benjamin. uh, He was just coming up. He was the youngest. But the 10 older brothers of Joseph, they saw that there was something special about him. They knew that he was favored by his father because Joseph was the son of Rachel, who was the woman that Jacob loved the most. And I'm not going to get into the whole story of the complications of his dysfunctional family. God, God moves in dysfunctional families. You know that? If you have a dysfunctional family, you should take hope because God seems to like the challenge of moving powerfully through that. And so Joseph is born, he's raised up, he's got something about him. Jacob sees it, the brothers see it, and they say, this ain't good. Because he's going to end up ruling things, he's going to end up with a share in things, he's going to be, this is bad, we need to do something about it. And so they were moved with envy, and they say that we're going to remove him from our presence. And so they plot this whole thing. They sell him as a slave and they say, you're out of here. They take his coat. They kill a lamb. They smear it with blood. They fake and stage his death. They bring the coat back to Jacob and they say, hey, we found this out in the field. I think this is Joseph. Sorry, dad. We feel bad for you, but Joseph's dead. Meanwhile, they sold him as a slave down into Egypt. But do you notice what it says there? It says that God was with him. Listen, people can try to sabotage you as much as they want. But if God is with you, he's going to bless you in whatever your location is. It may be in the place that you're comfortable or in the place where you're a foreigner, but if God is with you, God is with you. Because when God puts his blessing upon your life, he is not subject to your location or your situation in order to fulfill his promise and his purpose. If you're not in the place where God's blessing is on your life, I suggest you get there. And it's a lot simpler than you might think because it says in Ephesians chapter one that he has blessed us in heavenly places those who are seated with Christ. So if you're with Christ, if you're in Christ, then God's blessing is upon your life, which means that you are not subject to circumstance, location, or any other thing for God to do what he wants in your life. So Joseph was sold into Egypt, but it says that God was with him because God made a promise upon his life. Stephen brings that 
uh, to, to the surface. Then he says in verse 11, he says, now there came a dearth or a famine over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers found no substance. Okay, now where did that famine come from? The famine came from God. Why? Because God had a plan and a will and God was gonna bend the affairs of humanity and he was gonna overrule the plans of men to bring forth what he wanted to have done at the time that he wanted it done and God holds the power to do that then and now just the same. And so God brought a famine upon those who sabotaged Joseph. Meanwhile, Joseph was fully provided for and fully funded in Egypt because God had prepared him completely for it. And it says in verse 12, now watch this because this is why Stephen's talking about Joseph. He says, but when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent our fathers first. So Jacob gets the, the news that comes across his Twitter that, hey, they have plenty of food down in Egypt. And he sees the influencers and they're swimming in pools of corn down there. Meanwhile, the rest of the world is famished and hungry. And Jacob, not able to make the trip himself, he says to his sons, the 10 brothers, he says, hey guys, why don't you go down to Egypt and take some of this money? We've got plenty of that, can't eat it. And he says, go down there and see if you can buy some corn. And so he sent the fathers and it says, watch this, and at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's kindred was made known to Pharaoh. Okay, so the short version of the story is that they go down to Egypt. They stand in front of Joseph and they don't recognize him because he's probably completely shaven. He's dressed as an Egyptian and they haven't seen him in about 20 years. And so they stand before Joseph. They bow down before him, the fulfillment of the promise, the dream that was given to him but they don't know it's him. He goes through this whole thing with them because he wants to test them. Read it yourself. It's a great story. It's one of the most epic stories in the entire Bible, the saga of Joseph and his brothers. But he puts them to the test, and the first time, they don't recognize him. He's their ruler. He's been appointed by God to be their sustainer, their savior, if you would, but they don't recognize him the first time. But the second time, the second time they come before him, he's made known to them. He's revealed. He says, it is I, your brother whom you sold into Egypt. He says, don't be grieved or troubled with yourself. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save much flesh alive as it is this day. And it says that they were amazed at his presence. It's one of the understatements in biblical text and language. <laughs> the second time, they didn't recognize him the first time, but they recognized him the second time he was made known to his brothers. And so then sent Joseph, verse 14, and he called his father Jacob to him. Now who can tell me in here, shout it out. What did Jacob's name become? Israel. Israel. Israel was made known to him. Okay. Blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Israel is blind. They don't recognize Jesus. They don't see him as the Lord and as the Savior. They're blinded. But at the second time, at his second appearing, Israel will be made known to Jesus. They brought Jacob to him and all his kindred, 75 souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and he died. He and our fathers and were carried over into Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham brought for, bought for a sum of money from the sons of Emor, the father of Shechem. So they come down to Egypt. They die there, but their bones are then brought back to Egypt. I'm sorry, to Israel and planted in that land. Isn't that a great picture? Their bones are planted in the land. The seed of their existence is planted in the land that they don't even possess yet. Hidden in the ground there, waiting for the time when God's promise will be fulfilled. Now in verse 17, he goes on to example number three. Subject number three, the point will be the same. Verse 17. He says, but when the time came of the promise, or when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt until another king arose, which knew not Joseph, and the same dealt subtly 
with our kindred. Cunning, conspiracy, and evilly entreated our fathers so that they cast out their young children to the end that they might not live. So a mandate, an edict was made that would cause the death of the children, and that was the precursor to what God was about to do to fulfill the promise of bringing them into the land. Isn't it interesting that sometimes when God is about to move in a powerful way, things seem to get darker and hope seems to diminish before things all of a sudden change? Sometimes things falling apart is the very beginning of God putting things together. And it's just an irony. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 19 says this. It says, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard. When it seems like evil just can't get any stronger and the flood is so powerful of it coming in, God says, it's then that you should look out for something that I'm about to do. I think of when Jesus came the first time. Things were so dark for people all over the planet, especially even in Israel. And it says concerning Jesus, when he first came in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, it says that those that sat in darkness saw great light. That it was the time when things seemed to be the worst for the people of God, that it was then that God moved and he sent Jesus into the world. And so here for Moses, the people of God were in Egypt and the law had been made that none of the male children should be allowed to live. And so they were mandated to kill their young children, to control the population of those that were believers. But it was in that day, in verse 20 here, it says, in which time Moses was born and was exceedingly fair, beautiful. And he was nourished up in his father's house for three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned or taught in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and in deed. Now, what do we know about Moses? We know that when he was born, he was already ordained of God to be the savior of the nation from Egypt. Even from the time that he was born, it was seen in him of his parents. It was known by God of him of what he would be and what he would become. And yet, he grew up in a foreign place and he was trained up in a foreign culture. A savior who was not brought up in his proper home, but was brought up in a foreign place and in a foreign culture. Not known yet. In obscurity, learning the wisdom of the Egyptians, mighty in words and in deeds. But then in verse 23, it says that when he was a full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and he avenged him that was oppressed and he smote the Egyptians. So Moses, who was a legitimate, sorry, a, a, Nash, a, a, a Jew by birth, but Egyptian in position and in the line of royalty raised by the daughter of the Pharaoh, he comes out and he sees an Egyptian mistreating a Jew and he kills the Egyptian. And here's why he did it in verse 25. For he supposed, he assumed, he rationalized that his brothers would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, watch, but they understood not. In other words, the Savior showed up and he did some saving, but the people that he came to save said, what? Who are you? Why are you here? And the next day he showed himself to them as they strove and he would have set them at one again saying, sirs, you are brothers. Why do you do wrong to each other? So now he sees two Jews fighting with each other. He doesn't want to kill one of them. He just says, hey guys, why are you fighting like this? And they said, verse 28, will you kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying and was a stranger in the land of Midian where he begat two sons. Listen, they said, we will not have you to be a ruler over us. Moses was rejected in his first coming. He was presented to them as the savior. He supposed they should understand that he's the savior but they rejected him when he came the first time. And so he flees, he leaves the scene, watch this, and he takes a Gentile bride. The Savior, rejected in his first coming, 
receives a Gentile bride. What did Jesus do? He was rejected in his first coming. He left the place where he was refused, and he's taken a Gentile bride. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul says, I show you a mystery. He says that we are the bride of Jesus Christ, the Gentile bride taken by the Savior. But, verse 30, when the 40 years, another 40 years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. And Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight, and as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the Lord, or the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not behold. Then said the Lord to him, put off your shoes from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have seen. Do you know that God sees you? Do you know that God knows? He says, I have seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I am come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you into Egypt. What did, what did Jesus say? He said that it is not given to you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has placed in his own power. He says it's reserved even to him. And so the Father comes to the Savior, to Moses, and he says, now the time is here. I have seen, and now the time is right for you to go, for you to return. This Moses, verse 35, whom they refused, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. And he brought them out after he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. They didn't receive him in his first coming, but they did receive him in his second coming, when he appeared the second time. Now, verse 37, concerning this Moses. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me, him shall you hear. This is Stephen speaking to these Jews. And he says, listen, Moses, this Moses, the Moses that you're defending, the Moses that you love, that Moses said, God is going to send a prophet just like me. And you're to listen to him. This is he, this Moses, that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel that spoke to him in Mount Sinai with our fathers who received the living oracles to give unto us. And even him, verse 39, our fathers would not obey, but they thrust him from them, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us, for as for this Moses which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And so they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets, O you house of Israel, you have offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of 40 years in the wilderness. Yea, they took up the tabernacle of Molech, the star of your God Remphan, figures which you made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. He says, hey, listen, you guys that are so concerned about Moses and the customs that were delivered by Moses, you didn't even listen to him. Our fathers didn't even listen to him. They refused him at his first coming. And everything that he ever did that God has done, you have rebelled against it, you've resisted it, and you have refused it. Then he just goes crazy, verse 45. This is what preachers do when they're out of time at the end. They just give all their examples in a couple quick verses. He says, which also our fathers that came in, that is came into the land after, brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles. Now, if you have a newer translation, it uses the word Joshua there, speaking of how Joshua brought them into the promised land. Isn't it interesting that Moses, who represents the law, could only bring them out of Egypt, but he couldn't bring them into the promised land? Because the law can bring you out. The law can tell you you're in trouble, but the law can never bring you into the promised life of God. Who can? Jesus. Joshua means Jesus. It's the same name. That's why it's translated that way. Jesus brought them into the promised life. Jesus brings us in. 
whom God drove out, that is the, 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 the uh, pagan nations, before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house, howbeit the Most High dwells not in temples made with hands, as says the prophet. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, but what house will you build me, says the Lord, and what is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all these things? Now he gets to the application. This is the part of the sermon where we say, this is what this means to you. (laughs) How do you say this with the face of an angel? Ready? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears... You do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. He says, you guys have the plain truth laid out before you from the very beginning. God has given you example after example. You should have been so ready for the coming of Jesus. And you missed it because you're stiff-necked and stubborn in your hearts. And not only did you miss the presentation of Jesus, but you killed him. He says, you guys are messed up. And he said it with a smile on his face. That's a real gifted person, you know. In verse, don't you love people that can tell you you're a sinner and you're like, I can't tell if you like me or not, you know? <laughs> like, that's the best, right? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But then verse 54, it, this is their response. It says that when they heard these things, it says that they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Now, I want you to mark that verse in your mind, okay? It's a very critical and important verse in the narrative of this text. And here's why. Because the heart is the place where the seed of the word must land if it is going to germinate and become something. Jesus continually referred to the heart as the soil of a person's soul. He talked about the four soils. He talked consistently about the seed being the word. And when it says that they're cut to the heart, their ears were opened up to this point. What it means is that the witness of the word that Stephen gave has landed in the proper place. When you share with someone the truth of God, when you share your testimony of what God's done in your life, and someone emotionally responds at you, that's a good thing. If they get angry, if they get frustrated, it's a good thing because it means that something got in. They don't like it. They didn't want it. They maybe didn't ask for it, but it's in there. It says that they gnashed on him with their teeth, but he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly unto heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Just an aside, you know, Stephen's feet are planted on earth, and his eyes are seeing heaven at the same time. He is in the middle place of transition between earth and eternity, and yet his location is one and the same. Just think about it. You can go home and meditate on that. Heaven ain't that far away. Jesus said the kingdom of God is among you. I believe when we die, we are not carried a million miles off somewhere else. I believe we just change locations dimensionally, not physically. He says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. So they were open, now they're closed. And they ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes, watch this, at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. The ringleader of this entire campaign was a man named Saul who was dead set against Jesus against the people of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus, and the church of Jesus. And the seed of Stephen's word has just landed soundly, lodged itself in a place in this man's heart. And it says that they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and he cried with a loud voice, Lord, Lay not this sin to their charge. What kind of spirit filling is that? And it says that when he said this, he fell asleep. He peacefully 
gave up his, 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 his life and he transitioned from this life into the next. Now watch chapter 8, verse 1. It says that Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Remember, remember the beginning of the sermon? What God wanted for the early church? What did he want? Go. What were they doing? Stay. When you logically disobey God, he will whisper, then he will speak, then he will shuffle, then he will stomp. And when God stomps on a fire, the fire spreads, okay? The sparks and the embers, they go. And God is going to have his way. It's better to just do what he's asking you to do rather than wait for the time when the intensity has to get so bad that it's very, very, very uncomfortable. Okay, because at this time, the persecution is so strong that they don't even think about staying anymore. They don't want to stay anymore. They say, we got to get out of here. And so they scattered abroad throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, all but the apostles. And it says that devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentations over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hauling men and women. He committed them unto the prison. But watch this. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere, what? Preaching the word. You lose Okay, you lose. We're going to put this thing out. We're going to kill this. The sparks go. New fires just start everywhere that it goes because you cannot overcome God. <laughs> you just can't beat him no matter what. They are scattered. Here's our close, okay? I want you to just consider these things uh, tonight as we go our way. Number one is just beware of logical disobedience. Beware of logical disobedience. It makes sense that no one left Jerusalem. And I wonder what were the promptings that were ignored by, by the Christians, you know? Did God whisper? Did he speak? And they just said, ah, someone else will go. Someone else will go. Someone else will go. Someone else. Beware of it. Because eventually God's going to have his way and it will be much more comfortable for you if you just listen and do what God is asking you to do in the first place. Okay, has the Spirit been prompting you? Okay, read the word more often. Take time with your kids. You have them for a short period of time. Sow the word of God into their lives while you have them, while you can. The opportunity is going to go. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your young adult life. For some, get off social media. It's not benefiting you. It's, it's not how, it's, it's illogical. It's how we connect, you know. But you know the whisper of God, it's been there. For some, God is prompting. He's saying, hey, look into homeschooling. We're talking about the next generation. Think about it, expand, it's, get, get out. It, it could be anything that God is. But listen, beware of logical disobedience. Number two, advancement and opposition grow together. Okay, as you grow, as you move on, problems and difficulties are going to come as well. But the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Amen. So keep going, okay? Revival resulted in hypocrisy, resulted in a healthy fear. It was good, there was bad, God overcame the bad with good. There were multitudes, that's good. It brought strife, that's bad. That brought programs, that's good and bad. That brought Stephen, that's good. God overcame it. There was power. Power brought persecution, that's bad. Persecution brought opportunity, that's good opportunity for Stephen resulted in his death. That's bad. His death resulted in the most powerful seed that's ever been sown being lodged in the heart of a man named Saul. We're going to find out that's really, really good. I think Stephen's in heaven going, yeah, you mean I, did, I caught that fish? You know, I'm, I'm responsible for the salvation of the author of two-thirds of the New Testament? That's good, right? Okay, persecution of the church, that's bad, resulted in scattering, that's indifferent, but it brought revival to other places, that's good. 
Do you see? The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Okay? So what is the point of all of this? Life is dirty. This world is broken. But the dirt is God's dirt, and the dirt is doing something. Because it's the seed in the dirt, in the darkness of it, that germinates and becomes something that is a benefit for others. So no matter what God is doing in your life right now, let the dirt do its work because the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Whether it's the government or the devil or a mandate or inflation or anything else that is thrown against you, it's the place where seeds germinate and grow. And this Saul, who is the biggest persecutor of the church, is going to be the apostle that expands the church more than any other. Saul, who is responsible for the scattering, is going to be chosen by God to be the leader of it. Isn't it ironic? Think about it. I am the least of the apostles, said Paul, and am not even worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. God chose me. I wonder if in heaven, there was this, in the worship team, you guys can come. I wonder if in heaven, there was this moment where, where all the angels, they knew, they knew in the early church days that God wanted this thing to spread and that it would, but it wasn't. The fire is just staying so local. And I don't think God's a chatterbox. In fact, I know God's not a chatterbox. If God's a chatterbox in your life, I'm jealous of you, but you're probably wrong. It's just you think too much. God is an internal processor. And so I imagine God is there and, and there's this fire in Jerusalem and all the angels are going around going like, they're staying, they're supposed to be going. What's God going to do? What's God going to do? And I wonder if they're looking in and they're going like, who's he going to use? Like, who's going to be the one that's going to bring the fire out to other places? Who's going to be? And one of the angels finally gets the courage and he goes up and he's like, hey, who are you going to use amongst all those Christians that are there? I mean, well, the apostles, you have Peter, you have John, you have James, you have the deacons, you have Stephen, you have all these Barnabas in the fire. Who are you going to use to be the one that brings this thing to the world? And God says, oh, come here. That guy, that guy, that's the one I'm going to use. And here's the guy. He's got, he's got a sword in his hand and he's out there killing and hacking Christians to death. And the angels are like, what? That's the grace of God, <laughs> right? It's the grace of God. The seed of God's goodness is unstoppable. And the power of God is unmatchable. He calls us to be filled with his Holy Spirit. He calls us to trust him relentlessly and to keep on moving, keep on going. And problems are going to come with the progress that's made. But he wins in the end. We're going to find out what this seed is about to do next time when we get into chapter 9. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray in Jesus' name that you would encourage our hearts tonight. That as we see your history and what you've done from ages past, from the beginning to the end, we put our trust in you tonight. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you that there's a river. The streams thereof make glad the city of our God. Keep moving in us. Keep using us. Keep breathing fire into your church. Keep us from leaning on our own understanding or directing our own path. And give us grace to hear your voice and to be led of you in these days that we're in. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.